This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We are seeing in business at times that thinking outside the box can be very positive and a profitable approach by executives, which can benefit the company long term as a whole. But what is it that creates this type of mindset? Are people born with the ability only to have it spring out later in life? Maybe not necessarily, says our next guest. Jonas Sachs is co-founder of Free Range Studios, and he's the author of the book, Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It the Most. And it's a pleasure having Jonah on the show with us right now. Jonah, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thank you. So I guess take us behind the scenes as to uh, how this idea of unsafe thinking really kind of came to your mindset and and where it, how it's really uh, playing out right now. You know, I founded a creative agency when I was 23 years old. You know, I've always been an entrepreneur. And I did so much of that work when I was a kid, you know, based on gut feel and just experienced massive growth because I was there when the Internet was first kind of beginning as a communication tool. But then when I became something of an expert in the space of storytelling on the Internet, I suddenly found that some of those tools I thought I was born with that were natural to me started going away. As I became more of an expert, I kind of had more answers and questions, and I, I was getting more and more fixed in my way of thinking. And as the business grew, I was also trying to enforce more rules in the business and make it more predictable. And I got to this point where you know we were growing, things were going well, but I could see the creativity and the innovation being sapped out of the business. And so what I did was I, I started to look into whether creativity, once it starts to, to leave you, can be expanded, can be learned. And as I went into the science of it and started talking to you know, innovators that I admired, I just found that you know, creativity is not something that we're born with, that's just natural. It's a product of our environment and it's mm-hmm. a product of, the mes- product of the message that we're using. And so for me, it was really about, you know, my old way of thinking was keeping the trains running and keeping the business going. I needed to leap, though. I knew into something a lot bigger and more, um, more outside the box. And I just found that there are ways to actually do that, to, to save a business or to start a business when you need it most. Well, yeah, because if, if you just go off, of, I think, of normal reactions, people hear the word unsafe and they tend to retreat a bit. Um, but I think in this day and age, unsafe correlates to what we see a lot, as you kind of allude to in the book, uh, with innovators and trying to disrupt these days in, in the business sector. Yeah, you know, the, what's really dangerous these days is actually safe thinking. You know, if we try to repeat the patterns of the past, to fall back on the predictable, to do what we know has worked for others in you know, different situations, and always prefer you know, incremental change to big innovation we're going to eventually fail because the environments that we're in are changing so quickly that if our patterns of thought and behavior aren't changing with them, we're just not going to be able to stay relevant. And so there's a natural tendency, especially under pressure, to feel a certain amount of anxiety, to feel a certain amount of fear. But the innovators that I spoke to that really were able to break out had learned to reframe that sense of fear and anxiety as fuel for creativity. They they recognized that if an idea didn't make them nervous, it probably wasn't going to be breakthrough. And that the moments in their lives that they moved towards those feelings of discomfort, you know, that feeling of unsafety, 
was where all the breakthroughs came from. So I'm not saying we need to always do the crazy thing. Right. But if we're not making ourselves uncomfortable from time to time, we're certainly not pushing ourselves to the creative edge. Well, and, and playing off of that, I would guess in certain situations, safe thinking in the end will end up uh, hurting the company bottom line uh, or potentially individually a person's progression up the corporate ladder. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's just not a direct and obvious path to success anymore, where if you follow step A, B, and C, you're going to make it to the top of your, of your business or of the field that your business, business is in. And so there's something called the hill climbing heuristic, which is a thinking pattern that, that humans have, which is if we always take the next obvious step towards the top of the mountain, we're going to eventually get there. That's a sort of intuitive thing. Um, but the next safe, obvious step forward, actually, when we follow that heuristic, it leads to mediocrity time and again. And so if we are not um, if we're not trying new things along the way, take, doing experiments, um, incubating new ideas, even as we sort of march forward with business as usual, eventually that business as usual will, will feel comfortable the whole way, but will take us um, to a sort of midpoint of mediocrity. And so how do we do the things that keep our businesses going, but also take chances on the side, add a certain level of intelligent risk, risk to our operations is, is a challenge we all face now. And, you know, luckily there are ways to do it, so... Is is the digital age that we live in, is that impacting this process at all? Well, it certainly is accelerating the pace of disruption, and it's also making it a lot harder to have a sort of single idea that no one else has and that you can roll out and just sort of coast on. Um, you know, we live in a world where there are a billion people probably at any given moment who are trying to come up with something new. If you have an idea, there are thousands more people who, who also have that idea, and your competitive advantage is not finding something and exploiting it indefinitely. Your competitive advantage is being nimble with those ideas that you're creating and getting good feedback from the marketplace and, and constantly adapting as the world changes around you. So the old model, I think, was become an expert at one thing and just ride it as long as you can. And now in the digital age, there's a, a growing understanding that expertise is actually a thinking trap and that yeah. we build a model of the world and we try to sort of see the world through that lens continually. And those people are quickly becoming left behind. And it's the people who are constantly updating that lens through which they see the world um, who are able to stay on the edge. So how do you think it's also a, an aspect of business? How do you think it's changing uh, the leadership within some companies, especially, especially when you're talking about some of the companies that, that you uh, talked to for this book? I found that there was an ironic nature to companies that were really unsafe. You know, we think, in a, it's unsafe in a good way, that is, we think of these highly creative companies as perhaps freewheeling, you know, really kind of out of control, not a lot of structure. And interestingly, the companies that I found that were doing this best were really making it safe for people to get unsafe. So a kind of Wild West environment doesn't, like we saw at Uber uh, last year, you know, that's not something that unlocks the creativity of a team. It's when people are really protected and understood and valued as human beings, and there's a lot of cognitive diversity on the team, and that's really tolerated and celebrated that's when a team gets safe enough to go out into the arena and really battle it out and really do things where they're taking risks and knowing they're not going to have their heads cut off if they fail. Um, leaders who are being humble, who are rewarding the process, not just the results, 
who are finding ways to celebrate their rule breakers. Uh, these are the teams that are getting unsafe. One of my favorite stories from the book, I spoke with uh, the head coach of the Golden State Warriors, Steve Kerr. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he told me that you know, his, his fear as a player was that he didn't belong in the NBA and it wasn't okay for him to be there because he wasn't as big and strong as the other guys. And it wasn't until he was forced to take a big three-point shot that he got over that fear. And when he took over the Warriors, he decided that the first thing he needed to do was not to amp up the pressure on this you know, excellent team that was underperforming, but to make them feel in the locker room like they were 100% safe and protected so that when they got on the court, they could experiment quite a bit more. And that has really paid off. Um, and I think that any leader can, can sort of use that lesson to give us protected spaces so that we can have innovative spaces as well. Yeah, if you if you if you didn't like the Chicago Bulls back in the eighties, you weren't you weren't a fan of Steve Kerr to begin with. Anyway, uh, we are talking with Jonas Sachs, who is uh, the author of the book Unsafe Thinking: How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It the Most. Your comments are welcome at eight four four Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio one eleven or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney twenty one. Thinking about the Warriors, I, I mean, realistically. I think you can you can really correlate a lot of the success that they have had as a team and winning championships over the last you know half dozen years uh, right to what Kerr has done as the leader of that team. Obviously, the players play a role in it, but I think it, it maybe goes underserved at times how much the coach has actually set the environment to to really allow these players to to succeed. Definitely. And, you know, what, one of the things that he has done is really taken uh, the, the spotlight off of the star contributors to say, you know, this is what the team's about. We live or die by our star contributors and really make it about the team. You know, everyone in the Bay Area wears these strength in numbers T-shirts that you know, represent the Warriors. But Kerr says that that's actually something that they really invest in and believe in. So one of his first things he came in and he had, he had these great performers but they had some of the lowest passes in the number of passes per game in the league. And he pointed that out to them and said, for now, we're not going to count points and assists and rebounds. We're just going to get into the locker room and we're going to count the number of passes that we had. And until we have enough passes, um, we're not going to be successful. And so he started measuring new things. You know, that's a small kind of change to measure something no one was measuring before. But I think that that's sort of a metaphor for how businesses you know, can't just say we celebrate creativity and innovation. We celebrate taking risks. You actually have to measure those things, and you have to reward them so that people understand that that's how you get ahead in the business. For instance, it's okay, creative businesses often have people who are breaking rules within the company, the written, unwritten rules within the company. That's kind of happening everywhere. But the businesses that are really creative aren't just sort of tolerating it and looking the other way when it works. They're actually telling the story of these what's called positive deviants yeah. who are finding these workarounds and getting more efficient because they're cheating a little bit. And then they're telling the stories and celebrating them. And they're not afraid that that just means that everyone's going to start breaking the rules. It's actually a way of incentivizing creative behavior. We always say we want creativity, although if you ask teachers, they'll always tell you creativity is the most important thing to teach in my classroom, but my least favorite students are the creative ones. You know, study after study shows that. We're giving that mixed message about creativity. It's time that we actually celebrate it and incentivize it. And that's what, you know, that's what Kerr has done in many ways, and that's what great leaders do. Well, in speaking about being creative, you talk about uh, CVS and the decision they made uh, to not sell tobacco products anymore. And, and when you think about that decision, that, that takes creative thinking, uh, unsafe thinking, to borrow your, your line from your book, uh, because 
this was such a big part of their of their bottom line each and every year. Yes, uh, there's definitely an amazing story there that I just love because we often think about this in terms of you know maybe entrepreneurialism, individual actors. You think of creativity, you think about inventors, but it's hard to figure out how this might work in a large bureaucratic and conservative organization like a you know a CVS. And um, this is where a place where it actually happened. So. There, you had you had Helena Folks, who's a VP there, and she was on the team that was that was that was tasked with coming up with the core purpose of the organization. And what they came up with was, you know, not particularly inspiring. It was straightforward. It was, you know, we need to deliver health to our communities. But she knew that there was something hypocritical about that because the company was selling two billion dollars worth of tobacco every single year, and that was a you know a huge part of their business. And that's not a way to deliver health to a community. Right. Now, we're all used to this situation where there's just a disconnect in our business. We know there's a threat. We know there's something that we could be doing better, but it's just how business works, and what are we going to do about that? There's really no way to change it. She was a cancer survivor, and she was thinking there's got to be something we can do. But instead of just making that kind of appeal to the heart, she knew she could only make it happen if she could build a good business case for it. So she asked herself a really um, unusual question, and oftentimes the best ideas come from just the best questions. And her question was, can we make more money by not selling tobacco? Sure. The kind of counterintuitive idea. But when she asked that question, a whole bunch of rather obvious information that was being buried within the company came forth. And yeah, actually through brand value increase and through partnerships that she could make under the new um, Affordable Care Act, there were actually a lot of business opportunities that were being missed that no one was seeing because no one wanted to question the conventional wisdom of the company. Right. And to make a long story short, she built a team. She convinced her bosses to try it. And just before she got, uh, she got approval, they made her head of retail. So now she was going to take $2 billion off of her own P&L. And that was really the test. You know, would she be willing to take that, that big step backwards? You know, we talked about the hill climbing heuristic. This is not yeah. a step up the hill. This is a big step back. Well, she did it. And uh, they actually signed $11 billion in new business to make up for that $2 billion they lost within the first year. And, you know, there's nothing brilliant or amazing about the ideas she had. It was really that ability to break that spell of conventional thinking within the company and ask new questions um, that did you know, huge things for CVS and for the communities they serve. Right. And, and when you get into a pattern of, of doing business, and it is a pattern that obviously profits the bottom line, it's hard for, for a lot of companies, for a lot of executives, to want to make that drastic shift kind of like CVS has done. Although we see it, I guess, in differing versions with other companies these days. I would think like Amazon and Google are ones that are, that are doing versions of this, uh, yeah. even as we speak. Yeah, you know, you look at companies like Amazon and Google, and every time they roll out a product, most to the, to the outside consumer, there's a question, you know, why are they doing this? What does this even mean? What, what is this thing? They're kind of out ahead of, of even demand. Um, and that's because they're incubating many, many products and really right. recognizing that there is no standing still in business. You know, you just you simply, you simply can't. You compare that to, you know, a company like Blockbuster, for instance, uh, several years back now, where they kept coming to the table. And, you know, they weren't unaware that streaming video was going to eat their lunch. Sure. But every time yeah. they sat down, they would find some incremental solution or some reason to say, you know, we've got a little longer we can ride this out for. Um, you know, then there's companies that just become blind to reality, like, you know, Nokia, they first laughed at the flip phone and said nobody would ever want a phone that, you, you know, you need two hands for. Right. And then, then they laughed at the smartphone saying no one wants to keep a computer in their pocket. You become 
so attached to your way of earning money <laughs> that you literally can't see the world around you. And it's the companies that are seeing change not as a threat to be kind of parried, but as an opportunity for growth that are actually thriving now and will continue to thrive. So, um, yeah, there's just a stark contrast, I think, and you can see which companies are really interested in change and which are sort of pretending that it doesn't exist. And as individuals, I think we, we can we can choose our mindset in the same way. Can I can I throw in BlackBerry there as well with the fact that they were so they're so hesitant to go away from their traditional style of phone although a lot of uh, people loved it. You know, they they've just been swallowed up in the smartphone industry. Yeah, you know, there's actually a a bit of a trap that comes when you have something that a, a tribe of people love and don't want you to move away from. That can be a trap in itself. There was right. something about that BlackBerry, you know, keyboard that really people did want to keep and and really were attached to, and the company itself was attached to, but your tribe of fans and your internal people at your company are never going to give you objective reality. And right. One of the things I talk about in the book is how important it is for creative teams to collaborate with their critics and the people that uh, their detractors and not just their friends and fans. And so c- true cognitive diversity comes from uh, what I call creating with the enemy, essentially. Right. And if you are willing and brave enough to get outside of your four walls, and bring those people who, who most oppose you in, you're going to find that creative gold. I, I spoke to a, a, a preacher in Boston who was trying to bring down the murder rate in his neighborhood. He was trying to work with the at-risk youth, which is kind of the obvious thing to do, you know, sure. get them out of the gang. Yeah. But it wasn't until he walked the neighborhoods at night and actually met the murderers and the gang members um, and connected with them. Uh, and this is someone, obviously, with very high moral standards, doesn't really much care for murderers. But once he connected with them, they actually held the keys to the solution. They knew what they needed to stop the violence. And um, he was part of what's called the Boston Miracle, which brought down murders by two-thirds in his neighborhood and across the city. So uh, just a really nice example of, you know, that person that you think is out to get you is actually the person who might hold the key to to seeing your reality. To the phones we go in Santa Monica, California. Jay is on the line. Jay, go ahead. Good morning. Thank you for having me today. And I'm an avid listener of your show, and it's great to find out about your book. Thank you. Go ahead, sir. My question is, um, do you see this uh, unsafe thinking going into the political world, um, such as President Trump and his ways? You know, I had a uh, – thanks, thanks for getting right to the toughest question, Jay. Um, <laughs> I had an a interesting thought when I was writing this book, and I was writing right, right during the 2016 election. gave me a lot of pause because, obviously, President Trump um, – uh, skewed the, the, a lot of the conventional wisdom about how to run a political campaign and really, you know, broke the rules every which way in, which, in ways that people didn't predict and found a lot of competitive advantage in doing that. So in some ways, you know, that campaign and his, the way he's been running the White House is very unsafe and, and exemplifies some of the um, possibilities when we break away from some unwritten assumptions that are no longer working. But there's a part of the book that is equally important that I think he doesn't exemplify, which is that we all have many, many faculties of our brains that we stop using. We start becoming invested in one or two ways of behaving. Some of us are really analytical. Some of us are very driven by gut instinct. Um, some of us you know, are, move quickly. Some of us are more thoughtful. But we let the other parts atrophy. And this book is really arguing for how do you move towards those ways of thinking that you are not as comfortable with. How do you round out your, think, your cognitive abilities so you can see the world more clearly? And I feel like Trump is very attached to this intuitive 
gut level where he doesn't adjust very well um, to changing environments. And so it's that lack of self-reflection, I think, that ultimately is, is getting him in trouble and would have rounded out his, uh, his unsafe thinking abilities. So definitely there's been a preference lately for, um, for quick and quick and flashy solutions. And I think we, we actually need to be getting deeper and deeper into, you know, what the country really needs. And so in the political world, I think getting unsafe uh, might have more to do now with crossing political boundaries, coming up with uh, deeper solutions than, than where we are right now. Unfortunately, the problem is, is we have such division in, in Washington, D.C. right now that it, you can't really even cross the, uh, the political boundaries at this point, Jonah. Yeah, no, I think that it is a huge problem, and that clearly the sciences show that um, people on opposite sides of an issue, when they come together, that's where the that's where the well, breakthroughs happen time and again. We're, we're, we don't have a structure that's allowing for that anymore, and it seems to be only getting worse. So, so, so if uh, DC was a company, it would certainly be starting to go out of business. So, how does that element of it play into what you're talking about with unsafe thinking in in the business setting? Because obviously, you're you're when you're in an office, you're not going to be you know, it, the mindset is not going to be perfect with every person that you're working in your office with. You would, I mean, corporations would love to have that. They want to have people, all of their employees, buy into this path that they want to take the company. But if you have that friction, if you have that uh, that that different mindset, how how does that play in with the unsafe thinking mantra? There's a ironic problem, which is that to do innovation, to create anything of value, you need to work with other people. But other people are shown time and again to sort of depress creativity, to think in um, conventional ways. When you get a group together, essentially, that group think tends to slow down the ability to be creative. And so um, it's a problem for people who are uh, consider themselves unsafe thinkers, who are caught in organizations that don't allow them to be freewheeling and open. But I, I, I outline a lot of methods in the book where you don't have to go straight at saying, hey, I want to break the rules. Hey, I want to do something crazy here. I'm this you know, freelance rebel within our group. Because right. That will get you shot down really quickly. <laughs> right. But there are ways to rethink, um, for instance, the way that we do meetings and the way that we uh, brainstorm, putting more time uh, on, the ide- on the ideation phase and taking a little bit away from the execution phase to get more ideas to the surface, or um, doing creative types of uh, dissent, so things like red teams, which get people to fight out ideas in a role-play situation. The book is full of ideas of how, without saying, I'm disrupting this company, you can get in there and break that kind of groups of consensus. Um, I'm also finding that a lot of creative people who are within companies that are a bit you know, stodgy are spending a lot more time in kind of finding others who are in that same situation from other companies and getting, doing side projects, basically, where they're ramping up um, innovation outside of the four walls right. and then bringing it back in once it's been incubated. So, you know, if you're in a company that is absolutely stifling your creativity, that's a huge problem. But I think there's lots of ways to infect a company, even if you're not the leader, with unsafe thinking um, by changing the process, not just the, the attitude. Well, and, and we got about a minute left, but a lot of people would say that when you think about the use of the brain, which, you know, is this incredible muscle and it doesn't get used probably hardly enough to be able to kind of change the narrative a little bit can probably stimulate people's brains and, and get them to be more creative at times. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of what it all comes down to in a sense is, is changing that story that we're telling ourselves. You know, if we're if we're setting that identity for, of ourselves as unsafe thinkers or whatever we want to call it, where we're, we're trying to live up to that story of 
change is a good thing. Anxiety is something that means I'm on my creative edge. Expertise is not something that I want to stay fixed in. I want to be a lifelong learner. Right. If we can sort of change that story to say, you know, it's not just about the results, it's about the intelligent risks I've taken, um, that opens up a lot more space to operate. And if we keep going with those sort of old role models, if this is the way you do it, you grind it out, you keep going, you stick to your guns, um, yeah, we're going to wind up with, with the same old results. So how do we just get a lot more flexible in a world that demands flexibility is what I've been exploring. And again, just found really great stories and science that lets us know that it can be done if we open our minds. It's a great book, Jonah. Thank you very much for giving us your time and, and all the best with it. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Thank you. Jonah Sachs is our guest. The book is Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. Uh, it's a great book to go through and, and really some great concepts uh, in there as well. Uh, it is available in bookstores and online now uh, for your purchase. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.